Chapter Eleven of A Son at the Front. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chad. A Son at the Front by Edith Wharton. Chapter Eleven. Campton went home to his studio. He still lived there, shiftlessly and uncomfortably for mariette had never come back from lille she had not come back and there was no news of her lille had become a part of the occupied provinces from which there was no escape and people were beginning to find out what that living burial meant adele anthony had urged campton to go back to the hotel but he obstinately refused what business had he to be living in expensive hotels when for the lord knew how long his means of earning a livelihood were gone and when it was his duty to save up for george george who was safe he was definitely out of danger and whom he longed more than ever when the war was over to withdraw from the stifling atmosphere of his stepfather's millions he had been so near to having the boy to himself when the war broke out he had almost had in sight the proud day when he should be able to say look here this is your own bank account now you're independent for god's sake stop and consider what you want to do with your life the war had put an end to that but only for a time if victory came before long campton's reputation would survive the eclipse his chances of money-making would be as great as ever and the new george the george matured and disciplined by war would come back with a finer sense of values and a soul steeled against the vulgar opportunities of wealth meanwhile it behooved his father to save every penny and the simplest way of saving was to go on camping in the studio taking his meals at the nearest wine shop and entrusting his bed-making and dusting to old madame lebel in that way he could live for a long time without appreciably reducing his savings madame lebel's daughter-in-law madame jules who was in ardennes with the little girl when the war broke out was to have replaced mariette but like mariette madame jules never arrived and no word came from her or the child they too were in an occupied province so campton jogged on without a servant it was very uncomfortable even for his lax standards but the dread of letting a stranger loose in the studio made him prefer to put up with madame lebel's intermittent services so far she had borne operably her orphan grandsons were all at the front how that word had insinuated itself into the language but she continued to have fairly frequent reassuring news of them the chasseur alpin slightly wounded by alsace was safe in hospital and the others were well and wrote cheerfully her son jules the cabinet-maker was guarding a bridge at saint cloud and came in regularly to see her but campton noticed that it was about him that she seemed most anxious he was a silent industrious man who had worked hard to support his orphaned nephews and his mother and had married in middle age only four or five years before the war when the lads could shift for themselves and his own situation was secure enough to permit the luxury of a wife and baby madame jules had waited patiently for him though she had other chances and finally they had married and the baby had been born and blossomed into one of those finished little frenchwomen who at four or five seemed already to be musing on the great central problems of love and thrift 
the parents used to bring the child to see Campton and had made a celebrated sketch of her in her Sunday bonnet with little earrings and a wise smile and these two mother and child had disappeared on the second of August as completely as if the earth had opened and swallowed them as Campton entered he glanced at the old woman's den saw that it was empty and said to himself she's at Saint Cloud again for he knew that she seized every chance of being with her eldest he unlocked his door and felt his way into the dark studio madame lebelle might at least have made up the fire campton lit the lamp found some wood and knelt down stiffly by the stove really life was getting too uncomfortable he was trying to coax a flame when the door opened and he heard madame lebelle really you know he turned to rebuke her but the words died on his lips she stood before him taking no notice then her shapeless black figure doubled up and she sank down into his own armchair madame lebelle who even when he offered her a seat never did more than rest respectful knuckles on its back what's the matter what's wrong he exclaimed she shifted her aged face monsieur i came about your fire but i am too unhappy i have more than i can bear she fumbled vainly for a handkerchief and wiped away her tears with the back of her old laborious hand jules has enlisted monsieur enlisted in the infantry he has left for the front without telling me good lord enlisted at his age is he crazy no monsieur but the little girl he's had news she waited to steady her voice and then fishing in another slit of her multiple skirts pulled out a letter i got that at midday i hurried to saint cloud but he left yesterday the letter was grim reading the poor father had accidentally run across an escaped prisoner who had regained the french lines near the village where madame jules and the child were staying the man who knew the wife's family had been charged by them with a message to the effect that madame jules who was a proud woman had got into trouble with the authorities and been sent off to a german prison on the charge of spying the poor little girl had cried and clung to her mother and had been so savagely pushed aside by the officer who made the arrest that she had fallen on the stone steps of the commandotour and fractured her skull the fugitive reported her as still alive but unconscious and dying jules had received this news the previous day and within twenty-four hours he was at the front guard a bridge at saint cloud after that all he asked was to kill and be killed he knew the name and the regiment of the officer who had denounced his wife if i live long enough i shall run the swine down he wrote if not i'll kill as many of his kind as god lets me madame lebel sat silent her head bowed on her hands and campton stood and watched her presently she got up passed the back of her hand across her eyes and said the room is cold i'll fetch some coal campton protested no no madame lebel don't worry about me make yourself something warm to drink and try to sleep oh monsieur thank god for the work if it were not for that she said in the same words as the physician she hobbled away and presently he heard her bumping up again with the coal when the fire was started and the curtains drawn and she had left him the painter sat down and looked about the studio bare and untidy as it was he did not find the sight unpleasant he was used to it and being used to things seemed to him the first requisite of comfort but to-night his thoughts were elsewhere 
he saw neither the tattered tapestries with their huge heroes and kings nor the blotched walls hung with pictures nor the canvases stacked against the chair legs nor the long littered table at which he wrote and ate and mixed his colours at one moment he was with Fauteuil de Cluse, speeding through the night toward fresh scenes of death at another loge downstairs where madame lebel her day's work done would no doubt sit down as usual by her smoky lamp and go on with her sewing thank god for the work they had both said and here campton sat with idle hands and did nothing it was not exactly his fault what was there for a portrait painter to do he was not a portrait painter only and on his brief trip to Calons, some of the scenes by the way gaunt unshorn faces of territorials at railway bridges soldiers grouped about a provision lorry a mud-splashed company returning to the rear a long grey train of seventy-five ploughing forward through the train at these sights the old graphic instinct had stirred in him but the approaches of the front were sternly forbidden to civilians and especially to neutrals campton was beginning to wince at the word he himself who had been taken to calons by a high official of the army medical board had been given only time enough for his interview with fortin and brought back to paris the same night if ever there came a time for art to interpret the war as Raffet, for instance had interpreted napoleon's campaigns the day was not yet the world in which men lived at present was one in which the word art had lost its meaning and what was campton what had he ever been but an artist a father yes he had waked up to the practice of that other art he was learning to be a father and now at a stroke his only two reasons for living were gone since the second of august he had had no portraits to paint no son to guide and to companion other people he knew had fine jobs most of his friends had been drawn into some form of war work dastry after vain attempts to enlist thwarted by an untimely sciatica had found a post near the front on the staff of red cross ambulance adele anthony was working eight or nine hours a day in a depot which distributed food and clothing to refugees from the invaded provinces and mrs brant's name figured on the committees of most of the newly organized war charities among campton's other friends many had accepted humbler tasks some devoted their time to listing and packing hospital supplies keeping accounts in ambulance offices sorting out refugees at the railway stations and telling them where to go for food and help still others spent their days and sometimes their nights at the bitter cold suburban sidings where the long train loads of wounded stopped on the way to the hospitals of the interior there was enough misery and confusion at the rear for every civilian volunteer to find his task among them all campton could not see his place his lameness put him at a disadvantage since taxicabs were few and it was difficult for him to travel in the crowded metro he had no head for figures and would have thrown the best-kept accounts into confusion he could not climb steep stairs to seek out refugees nor should he have known what to say to them when he reached their attics and so it would have been at the railway canteens he choked with rage and commiseration at all the sufferings about him but found no word to cheer the sufferers secretly too he feared the demands that would be made on him if he once let himself be drawn into the network of war charities tiresome women would come and beg for money or for pictures for bazaars they were already getting up bazaars money 
he could not spare, since it was his duty to save it for George. And as for pictures, why, there were a few sketches he might give, but here again he was checked by his fear of establishing a precedent. He had seen in the papers that the English painters were already giving blank canvases to be sold by auction to millionaires in quest of a portrait, but that form of philanthropy would lead to his having to paint all the unpaintable people who had been trying to bribe a picture out of him since his sudden celebrity. No artist had a right to cheapen his art in that way. It could only result in his turning out work that would injure his reputation or reduce his sales after the war. So far Campton had not been troubled by many appeals for help, but that was probably because he had kept out of sight and thrown into the fire the letters of the few ladies who had begged a sketch for their sales and his name for their committees. On appeal, however, he had not been able to avoid. About two months earlier he had had a visit from George's friend Boylston. The youth he had met at Dastry's dinner the night before war was declared. In the interval he had entirely forgotten Boylston. But as soon as he saw the fat brown young man with a twinkle in his eyes and his hair, Campton recalled him and held out a cordial hand. Had not George said that Boylston was the best fellow he knew? Boylston seemed much impressed by the honour of waiting on the great man. In spite of his cool twinkling air, he was evidently full of reverence for the things and people he esteemed, and Campton's welcome sent the blood up to the edge of his tight curls. It also gave him courage to explain his visit. He had come to beg Campton to accept the chairmanship of the American Committee of the Friends of French Art an international group of painters who proposed to raise funds for the families of mobilized artists. The American group would naturally be the most active since Americans had, in larger numbers than any other foreigners, sought artistic training in France, and all the members agreed that Campton's name must figure at their head. But Campton was known to be inaccessible, and the committee, aware that Bolston was a friend of George's, had asked him to transmit their request. You see, sir, nobody else represents. Campton thought as seldom as possible of what followed. He hated the part he had played. But after all, what else could he have done? Everything in him recoiled from what acceptance would bring with it. Publicity, committee meetings, speechifying, writing letters, seeing troublesome visitors, hearing harrowing stories, asking people for money, above all, having to give his own, a great deal of his own. He stood before the young man, abject, irresolute, chinking a bunch of keys in his trouser pocket, remembering afterward that the chink must have sounded as if it were full of money. He remembered too, oddly enough, that his own embarrassment increased Bolston's vanished. It was as though the modest youth, taking his host's measure, had reluctantly found him wanting, and from that moment had felt less in awe of his genius illogical of course and unfair but there it was the talk had ended by campton's refusing the chairmanship but agreeing to let his name figure on the list of honorary members where he hoped it would be overshadowed by rival glories and having reached this conclusion he had limped to his desk produced a handful of notes and after a moment's hesitation held out two hundred francs with the stereotyped sorry i can't make it more he had meant it to be two hundred and fifty, but, with his usual luck, 
all his fumbling had failed to produce a fifty-franc note, and he could hardly ask Boylston to make a change. On the threshold the young man paused to ask for the last news of George, and on Campton's assuring him that it was excellent, added, with evident sincerity, still hung up on that beastly staff job. I do call that hard luck. And now, of all the unpleasant memories of the visit, that phrase kept the sharpest sting. Was it, in fact, hard luck? And did George himself think so? There was nothing in his letters to show it. He seemed to have undergone no change of view as to his own relation to the war. He had shown no desire to be in it, as that young man Upshur said, for the first time since he had seen George's train pull out of the Gare de l'Est. Campton found himself wondering at the perfection of his son's moral balance. So many things had happened since. War had turned out to be so immeasurably more hideous and abominable than those who most abhorred war had dreamed it could be. The issues at stake had become so glaringly plain. Right and wrong, honour and dishonour, humanity and savagery faced each other so squarely across the trenches that it seemed strange to Campton that his boy, so eager, so impressionable, so quick on the uptake, should not have felt some such burst of wrath as had driven even poor Jules Lebel into the conflict. The comparison, of course, was absurd. Lebel had been parted from his dearest, his wife dragged to prison, his child virtually murdered. Any man in his place must have felt the blind impulse to kill. But what was Lebel's private plight? but a symbol of the larger wrong. This war could no longer be compared to other wars. Germany was conducting it on methods that civilization had made men forget. The occupation of Luxembourg, the systematic destruction of Belgium, the savage treatment of the people of the invaded regions, the outrages of Louvain and Reims and Ypres, the voice with which these offences cried to heaven had waked the indignation of humanity yet george in daily contact with all this woe and ruin seemed as unmoved as though he had been behind a desk in the new york office of bullard and brant if there were any change to his letters it was rather that they were more indifferent his reports of himself became drier more stereotyped his comments on the situation fewer he seemed to have been subdued to the hideous business he worked in it was true that his letters had never been expressive his individuality seemed to dry up in contact with pen and paper it was true also that letters from the front were severely censured and that it would have been foolish to put in them anything likely to prevent their delivery but george had managed to send several notes by hand and these were as colourless as the others and so were his letters to his mother which Mrs. Brandt always sent to Miss Anthony, who privately passed them on to Campton. Besides, there were other means of comparison. People with sons at the front were beginning to hand about copies of their letters. A few passages, strangely moving and beautiful, had found their way into the papers. George, God be blessed, was not at the front, but he was in the war zone, far nearer the sights and sounds of death than his father, and he had comrades and friends in the trenches, strange that what he wrote was still so cold to the touch it's the scientific mind i suppose campton reflected these youngsters were all rather like beautifully made machines yet 
it had never before struck him that his son was like a beautifully made machine he remembered that he had not dined and got up wearily as he passed out he noticed on a pile of letters and papers a brand new card he could always tell the new cards by their whiteness which twenty-four hours of studio dust turned to grey campton held the card to the light it was large and glossy a beautiful thick pre-war card and on it was engraved harvey mayhew délégué de état unio congrès de la paix with a pen stroke through the lower line beneath was written an impressive p t o and reversing the card campton read in an agitated hand must see you at once call up nouveau luxe and lower down excuse ridiculous card impossible get others under six weeks so mayhew had turned up well it was a good thing perhaps he might bring news of that mad benny upshur whose doings had caused campton so much trouble in the early days that he could never recall the boy's obstinate rosy face without a stir of irritation i want to be in this thing well young upshur had apparently been in it with a vengeance but what he had cost campton in cables to his distracted family and in weary pilgrimages to the war office the american embassy the consulate the prefecture of police and divers other supposed sources of information the painter meant some day to tell his young relative in no measured terms that is if the chance ever presented itself for since he had left the studio that morning four months ago benny had so completely vanished that campton sometimes wondered with a little shiver if they were ever likely to exchange words again in this world mayhew will know he wants to tell me about the boy i suppose he mused harvey mayhew harvey mayhew with a pen stroke through the title which so short a time since it had been his chief ambition to display on his cards no wonder it embarrassed him now but where on earth had he been all this time as campton pondered on the card a memory flashed out mayhew mayhew why wasn't it mayhew who had waylaid him in the krillin a few hours before war was declared to ask his advice about the safest way of travelling to the hague and hadn't he campton in all good faith counselled him to go by luxembourg in order to be out of the way of trouble the remembrance swept away the painter's sombre thoughts and he burst into a laugh that woke the echoes of the studio End of chapter eleven recording by chad